Sam and I'm one of the RAs in the Research Hub. For this podcast, I'll be interviewing Dr. Hua Mei Han, who is an Associate Professor at SFU's Faculty of Education. Dr. Han will be providing an overview of her research in three areas. One, language, religion, and immigrant settlement. Two, youth and multilingual study. And three, the African-China trade migration. Dr. Han will also provide an exciting overview of a special issue of language, ideology, Christianity, and identity, in which she is the editor for five articles written by scholars around the world. Thank you for taking the time to participate in this podcast for this issue of Research in Focus. Dr. Han, you have a very impressive faculty profile page on the SFU website. I love how you've organized your research highlights with links to publications to learn more. So I really commend the audience to look at this more if uh, you're interested in these different fields of study. Thank you. So Dr. Han, can you, um, how long have you been at SFU? Uh, I came here in September 2007, so you know, 12 going 13 years. What's your professional background? Um, so I, uh, I'm an applied linguist, and uh, so I did my PhD in second language education at Oise University of Toronto. Uh, but I actually my uh, bachelor and my MA was in Chinese linguistics, and I was a faculty member in Chinese linguistics in Shanghai. Let's talk about your first area of research around language, religion, and immigrant settlement. In, in some of the research, you've chosen the church as a, mm-hmm. as a basis for your research. Is, was there a reason that you decided to use the church? Uh, well, it was, uh, I call it structured accident. I came to Canada as an adult immigrant. Mm. And uh, I was a, a linguist, a Chinese linguist. And uh, I did, started my PhD because I wanted to help myself to learn English to understand um, how to better learn English, and I also wanted to help others um, how they learn English. Mm. Um, so uh, because the kind of uh, research I was reading at that time didn't speak to me as an adult immigrant. You know, you know, all the language acquisition theory and so on is about learning grammar and learning the linguistic aspects of it. And I was pretty good at those things already but I still was having a lot of difficulties in my PhD study. Mm. And uh, if I was having that much of a difficulty as a linguist, <laughs> and so I could imagine how other immigrants were skilled but didn't have a language background, what kind of difficulty they would be experiencing. Mm. So that's why I thought I needed to do ethnography, meaning to explore, to, to, to really explore from the ground up instead of coming from the theory just say you know you need to learn uh, you need to develop fluency you need to develop you know this um, formulaic kind of a um, uh, stems and so on so instead of coming from those more uh, preconceived concepts I needed to start from more ground up so that's why I did ethnography Uh, that meant I needed to follow people and uh, so that's how uh, they, the people led me to church. Uh, in some of your writing, you, you, you talk about sociolinguistic ethnography. Mm. Can you say more about what that, what that is? Okay. 
so it's a you know um, social linguistic ethnography is ethnography, and uh, the the defining. Uh, term is social linguistics, meaning in this ethnography, I pay special attention to the linguistic aspect of it. Mm. And uh, when we talk about social linguistics, it's really uh, seeing language in real life in the social setting and paying attention to the social dimension, mm. uh, often social, political, social, economic, those terms. Mm. Um, so. Uh, we look at how language may differ. Um, there are different uh, different language varieties and uh, different uh, styles and uh, different usages that all connected to people. Instead of looking at language just as a system, it's more look at the language as a social phenomenon. What have been some of your key findings to date? First is I found that uh, um, people, uh, so for learning language, uh, so uh, the, the assumption um, in immigrant settlement studies and in second language acquisition and so on is people learn the language, then they can, you know, find the jobs and uh, the higher your language proficiency, the, the more po opportunity possibility for you to find jobs and uh, then once you find the jobs you can integrated socially and uh, also so hopefully civically and uh, politically. Um, what I found is um, actually people, uh, so instead of a, like people need to develop uh, certain levels of proficiency, then they can find the jobs. Uh, I would say actually there were very little opportunities for adult immigrants to use the language, use English in their everyday life, mm. even though they live in Canada. Mm. Um, and of course, uh, if you don't have opportunity to use the language, you may have a good um, knowledge of the linguistic aspects of the language, but you don't have this uh, um, um, experiential of experience of using the language mm. and communicating, you may not understand the cultural aspects um, and uh, you know the interpersonal side of things. So that's why uh, I think um, immigrants have hugely disadvantaged. So first, mm. I found skilled immigrants, like previous uh, less educated immigrants, their counterparts earlier. Uh, they also didn't have much opportunity to use English. Mm. So that's the first for me. The second, I found that um, there are institutions um, that uh, help them to learn, and unfortunately, not many at all. The only place I found supportive, supportive as an institution for them to learn uh, was church in my mm. uh, study. While other um, institutions, particularly more mainstream institutions, uh, were were more exclusive, mm. more exclusionary, based on language. Um, so I found that when they were in the less less discriminatory kind of settings, they actually learn, and uh, they also. Um, Without the institutional support, uh, they are, 
they were very resilient people, and yeah. they actually um, uh, created created jobs for themselves, mm. and uh, they actually were using English. Can you say more about your second line of study around youth and multilingual study? The second line of work uh, kind of extended from that to. Uh, Vancouver focus on youth and multilingualism. Again, um, I was in the interest in the church setting. Um, I worked with the second generation, so-called 1.5 generation, Chinese Canadians, and uh, of course also with their parents and uh, so on. Um, uh, focusing on multilingualism, uh, multilingual development and identity construction. After worked with uh, uh, adults, I wanted to look at uh, youth, um, and also uh, the the church that was English monolingual but uh, multicultural. Yeah. Uh, the one who was, you know, supportive but not as inclusive was led by 1.5 generation Chinese Canadians oh. uh, in uh, in Ontario. So that was why I wanted to study uh, youth to see. You know, how did they become um, Christians? How did they think about this language policies and uh, um, uh, identities? I think um, my work on youth in, in uh, BC was, in a way, it was not surprising. So they were socialized in the Chinese church, but surprising and not surprising, I guess. Yeah. Um, they were, um, so some of them, were um, children when they came here. Yeah. Some of them were born here, grew up here. And uh, uh, in this particular church, it was an interesting church. It was actually a, a mainland Chinese church in the sense that both the pastors mm-hmm. and all the administrators um, are first-generation immigrants. Mm. And the majority of them are from mainland China. Mm. And that is surprising because um, um, uh, mainland China or the People's Republic of China um, uh, basically had this official policy of atheism, mm-hmm. um, uh, not embracing Christianity. And so most Chinese immigrants came from, um, from mainland. They were not Christians before coming here. Yeah. And so in this short time, in 20 years or so, we have mainland Chinese church that led by uh, not only almost 90% of the congregants were from mainland, but all the church leadership mainly were from mainland. Wow. So they not only converted to Christianity um, during this settlement process, they and they became pastors. Yeah. Right? And so that's that's a, that's, um, that's a, something um, not surprising to me, but would be surprising to the um, Canadian society yeah. that uh, it's the difficulties of a settlement and immigration in a settlement that uh, uh, prompt and uh, shaped many immigrants to become Christians. Um, just for clarification's sake, yeah. when you say one and a half generation, or how like how, how do you divide that one uh, one and a half to? Okay. Yeah. Um, so one point five generation is a social social sociological term, mm-hmm. and they call uh, those uh, who were born outside of 
Canada but grew up in Canada, 1.5 generation, and those who were born in Canada to um, uh, parents who came um, as immigrants from uh, outside Canada as second generation. And uh, this, uh, these terms are very problematic. That's why I use the so-called, yeah. uh, because this is basically using people's place of birth as a criteria to label people. Um, and uh, it also happens much more often with racialized groups. Yeah. So switching gears entirely, you're looking at your, uh, your research with the uh, uh, African town in, in, in Guangzhou in, mm -hmm. in, in China. Can you tell, tell, more, tell me more about like, that research? Okay. Um, that work, uh, uh, you know, at the beginning, um, I was, uh, I heard about uh, there, are, there were Africans in China, and I was uh, uh, more concerned about the racism, mm -hmm. um, and because China has been a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multilingual because, you know, the so-called eight dialects yeah. that were not mutually legible to each other. There were people who would see some of the language should dialects should be called languages. So in that sense, it's always China has always been multicultural and multi-ethnic and even multilingual. Mm -hmm. um, but it was not necessarily multi-racial. Mm -hmm. And so I read some comments about uh, race about uh, um, uh, black African traders in China. Mm -hmm. So there was an opportunity. Um, that I visited. Once I visited there and uh, saw the vibrant businesses going on, the first time was 2009, summer 2009. I thought, uh, I need to study this. <laughs> and uh, as an applied linguist uh, interested in language learning, I wanted to know how these African traders who, uh, who didn't speak a word of Mandarin or Cantonese um, went to China and to do business. And uh, they um, make a living out of their, uh, mm. their business and they also need to support their family, even um, you know, extended families, right? And then also they actually mostly, inter I found out that they mostly interacted with uh, migrant workers from the countryside and oh. from other provinces who moved to Guangzhou. And uh, so, so these um, uh, workers that the African traders came into contact with were the working class or the so-called peasant workers who didn't have a lot of uh, education, who didn't have a lot of uh, language, foreign language education in school. So these Chinese workers at that time didn't speak much of English. Mm. And none, very few would speak French or any other African languages. So, and they also rely on this work to make a living. So, how these two communicate—that's fascinating. Yeah. So, what's the lingua franca like when when it comes to something like that? <laughs> the lingua franca, I call them um, uh, Chinglish. Chinglish. Yeah, <laughs> Chinglish is a, this actually Chinglish came uh, is the word some of the Anglophone African traders used yes and uh, the chinese traders would call them like a tianxiu tianxiu is a district yeah tianxiu english or xiaobei english so oh. english of this xiaobei district yes. the xiaobei area 
Huh. So, so the Chinese workers actually use this place name yeah. to call this English, uh, while African and only Anglophone Africans were calling right. this Chinglish. Huh. Chinglish is almost like a de derogatory yeah, kind of term, yeah. right? It's like a Singlish, Hinglish, mm -hmm. and so on. So mm -hmm. it's English, but uh, but with a lot of uh, Chinese structure, yeah. um, sentence structure, and the Chinese vocabularies. So it's kind of Chinese English. Wow. Yeah, but uh, in the African traders, actually, maybe half from Anglo, uh, from formerly. British colonies, English Anglophone uh, countries, and then maybe half from um, uh, Francophone and uh, uh, Portuguese and all other languages, uh, those uh, former colonies, and also they also speak their local uh, African languages, right? So the Africans, many of them uh, were middle class, and if they were not the middle class, they wouldn't be able to fund that trip. Mm -hmm. So they were middle class in African countries, um, but once they went to China, China is given its economic development is more wealthy than most of the African countries. So the Africans traders, they were middle class in their own country, and when they went to China, they kind of, a, you know, landed at the margin of yeah. the Chinese society. And then these um, Chinese workers from other provinces and so from sure. the countryside of uh, Guangzhou also were on the margin of the Chinese society. Hmm. And they were the ones kind of directly yeah. interact with the African traders. So well. that's why um, the Chinglish, Chinese English, or Xiaobei English, this particular form of a very mixed form of a Chinese and English. Uh, English vocabulary, but Chinese grammar, Chinese uh, kind of a sent sentiment. Wow. Um, kind of combined together, became this lingua franca. Huh. Yeah. So in terms of identity, yeah. m most of these um, African uh, immigrants maintain a transnational type of identity, or is, is, is this something that they see as a, as a short-term thing or do you see a lot of them settling down? Uh, that's a very interesting question and it's a very complicated question and I think a, a small number of them uh, made quite a lot of money and there were you know it's this kind of a international transnational business export uh, import uh, can have a huge profits mm -hmm. and also there's a lot of risks Mm -hmm. Right, so there were people who made money, then lost the money, and there were people who um, were living in a very precarious situations. And this was complicated by China, China's immigration policy, migration policy, not immigration because they yeah. um, not immigrating there. They were mainly just for short-term businesses. Mm -hmm. But there were people who've been there or in and out or been living in China for ten years, twenty years. And there were people who married a uh, local Chinese woman. And uh, so their identity um, is um, not necessarily similar to the Canadian case uh, because of this um, history and uh, immigration policy and so on. Uh, so there, there would be some uh, Africans, they consider themselves quite Chinese, you know, um, they, some of them speak very good Chinese, fluent Chinese. A few could write, yeah. and uh, but most of them learned without going to school. Uh, 
that's another complication because of the difficulties of obtaining longer term visas. Mm -hmm. So some um, the traders, uh, quite a bit, quite a, a, a sizable group of traders uh, chose to enroll in Chinese language programs oh, in order to get a visa, <laughs> right? So the official, uh, uh, official identity would be uh, students learning Chinese language, but their main uh, livelihood based on the, the export-import businesses. Yes. And then there were also middle-class Africans who had university education in African countries. They went to China, they actually enroll in um, universities, degree programs or you know different kind of programs, and they also uh, do business part-time. And wow. this group of people would be the more uh, kind of a, had a bit of a um, uh, advantage yeah. than the than the others. Yes. Right. And uh, some of them actually uh, were able to uh, get visa to travel to the U.S. and to different European countries. And to them, it was uh, you know, business opportunity was a main drive and uh, other possibilities. And also in the, using China as a springboard. Yes. To go to um, either mostly they would like to come to Canada to go to Europe, uh, the U.S. and to Australia. So they are using uh, China as a springboard. A spring, oh, wow. uh, as a springboard for themselves and also importantly for family. Uh, for family. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So as an applied linguist, I have to ask, yeah. do, you, do you see this kind of um, uh, Chinglish or, mm -hmm. or this um, uh, district localized dialect yeah. kind of continuing on or is it more of a like a transitional uh, like a structure as people become more fluent or disappear like is it like a pidgin English or a Creole or is it something that we yes um, I, I think uh, you know um, um, for for social linguistic uh, social linguist studying this they would say this is a uh, this is a pidgin yeah and uh, and uh, but uh, you know the Basically, the definition of a pinching and a creole yeah. um, again is based on this uh, um, idea that uh, a language needs to be a stable system uh, and a you know standard language. That's um, uh, that's uh, the norm and the, or the ideal, and that's what uh, a theory, a theoretical linguist will study, oh. and we study the. Standard language. Standard language. Usually, they are standard because of the, um, you know, the economic power yeah. behind the speakers, and uh, it, sometimes that's a, uh, in modern time, that's the nation state behind this language, mm -hmm. and then the other, like uh, uh, the English in Africa town in Guangzhou, would come and go, depending on the, the the, the future of the. The trading community. Huh. If the trading com community continues there, this variety will continue. If this community kind of because of a visa policy and so on, if this community kind of being pushed out, then it won't continue. continue. So this is a kind of a uh, you know the language in this state of. Um, uh, it's a very vibrant right yes, now. It's constant evolution. Uh, it was the evolution of it. Yeah. yeah th so there would be a life cycle for this mm. uh, uh, variety. 
mm. uh, or language. And um, so uh, as an applied linguist, so we, if we see the only language that's worth studying is the standard yeah. language, then this kind of variety, this kind of a, you know, um, so-called pinging wouldn't be an object of our study. Mm. But I think as a bilinguist who's interested in language learning, uh, this is a super important. Yes. Um, because this is uh, the language people rely on to make a living. And uh, that also shows the capacity for anybody to mm. learn language. Mm. And when they are in that kind of uh, environment. Mm. Mm. Right? Fascinating. Okay. Uh, coming to the... Uh, back to so the target audience for this research, yeah. um, who, who would that be, and what are the implications for them? Um, that's a that's a interesting question because um, I think my um, when I started that I thought I wanted to know how uh, I think the primary audience is applied linguist, mm. and uh, to me is you know I want to know how people learn English learn languages without the formal instruction. Mm -hmm. And what we as a applied linguist, as language teachers and a language workers can learn from this. You know, uh, so what are people doing there mm -hmm. that we're not doing in the classroom, mm. that we're not helping our students to learn, mm. right? So that's my original goal. Yes. And I think it's helpful, to, it really shows this um, vibrant multilingualism and this, uh, you know, using languages as resources instead of being so keen on teaching this standard form. Mm. And so it's this change, how do we need to um, modify our understanding as what's, what's worth learning and what's valuable and why. Wow. So so that's uh, that's one. And the other uh, more interesting and unexpected is really about the migration. Mm. And so um, to me, um, I think this project, uh, I hope it will have some something to say to the people who are in the field of migration and settlement and to the policymakers. Um, because um, so what, uh, so just this pattern, so, uh, uh, so it's middle class Africans moving to China mm -hmm. and working class Chinese yeah, moving to the city. The other side of my work is working class Chinese moving to Africa to operate Chinese shops mm. in Africa. Mm. So you have this kind of a yeah. classed and raced movement and it's middle class Chinese and middle class Africans moving to countries like Canada and the US and other um, English speaking or more uh, industrialized countries. So this showed me a pattern of migration globally that this movement of people is classed, is raced. Oh. And, but middle class Africans and Chinese coming to North America, they would be declassed and they would be racialized and uh, um, they were, you know, kind of funneled into the margins of our Canadian societies and, or American societies. And while the Africans going to China, they were marginalized in certain ways and the Chinese um, working class going to Africa, 
um, some of them made a fortune and uh, you know can they could enjoy middle class life mm -hmm. in Africa and of course there, there were risks that there were you know mm -hmm. um, all this you know, give and take yeah. kind of thing, right? So, so it's just that you know, um, so so migration is very much an economic issue, and it's also a human issue, and so when we look at um, uh, policy making, because Canada as a, as a uh, industrialized uh, first world countries, we are recruiting skilled immigrants from third world countries. Mm -hmm. And there are people who see this is poaching. Hmm. We are taking the educated yeah. people. We select them. We select them to come here, and then you know they are declassed and so on and so forth. Um, and and what's our responsibility? So this is legal, you know. And we uh, our um, uh, you know immigration. Policy are proud. Policymakers are proud that we are taking the best and the brightest, the brightest from the rest of the world. But uh, what's our responsibility as a nation, as a developed nation, uh, in terms of taking the best people and then, yeah. you know, yeah. not integrating them? Wow. And uh, the globalization is very unequal and uh, our immigration policy is contributing to this inequality mm. um, so 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 this is what um, I think is the, the wow. larger picture so global implications yeah kind of a real paradigm shift yeah, in how to I'm think about. about the ethics yeah. you know not only you know the legal aspects of a migration but the ethics of a developed nations what what's our moral responsibility to the people we we we, we recruit, mm -hmm. and what's our responsibility to the state, the the kind of situation of other nations? These are some very big questions, and I look forward to some of your research over the next few years. But Dr. Han, I heard that you have a special issue uh, coming out in the Journal of Identity, Language, and Education. Can you yes. tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, I'm very proud of this issue. Uh, it's coming out, it's the first issue of this journal, and uh, it's called a Critical Empirical Examination of Christian Institutions as Alternative Space, meaning Alternative Space for Language Learning. Mm. Uh, so this uh, built from my work um, on the, uh, you know, the, the project in Toronto and the project here with the youth, uh, look at uh, uh, how uh, language and Christianity uh, kind of in intertwine. This special issue has four empirical papers, and the one paper was about the economy of religion, uh, Christianity, and English teaching um, in South Korea wow. by South Korean missionaries toward North Korean uh, youth huh. refugees. So, so this is a paper that really highlights the, econ the political, political economy of uh, Christianity and English. Um, you know, kind of uh, offering English as a contact point uh, for religion. Wow. Yeah. And the second paper look at um, um, Algeria. Um, so look at uh, a language school uh, teaching French. Uh, sorry, teaching Arabic 
teaching Arabic to uh, to like um, uh, North American and European scholars and the professionals and uh, how of course Algeria uh, being the French colony um, in the post-colonial era and um, how the, the the textbook was written by the former uh, um, Missionaries, do you call them missionaries? Yeah, wow. Yeah, huh. and and then of course you know they are taught by a local Algerian, and how the balance or the imbalance between the French language and the Arabic, the spoke uh, the you know uh, vernacular Arabic versus the standard Arabic, so all this kind of complexity, and uh, um, wow. Yeah, so that's uh, another paper. The third paper is about um, um, missionaries um, or Protestant um, Prost, uh, uh, Christians from the U.S. and probably from U.S. mostly uh, going to the to Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, the former um, uh, socialist yeah um, USSR yeah, yeah the regions. And uh, now in the post-socialist region, uh, and, and uh, how these um, field workers—they were either missionaries or doing uh, developmental work and so on—and how they uh, learn or not not learning the local languages, uh, the kind of a dynamic um, between this North American Protestants uh, um, and the local. Um, language ecology mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting too. Wow. The last paper was mine. Um, is uh, I focus on the linguistic injuries um, that this uh, Chinese church incurred, both the, uh, the, yeah, the use and how they um, internalize this shame, this uh, environments uh, based on their language and how the church language policy to me was also a linguistic injury, meaning, um, you know, because this is Canada, they internalized Canada, you have to have this, uh, English have this high priority. Um, so even though they didn't have a, uh, enough adults have so-called standard English to support youth, they set up this youth congregation in English. Hmm. And uh, so in this context, the youth um, in the English congregation uh, were constructed as second generation English speaking and that they were not well mentored by adults because adults didn't feel they were legitimate, legitimate enough to support them because of language and uh, while, um, uh, while the, there's also uh, consequences or impact on this intergenerational relationship or lack of a relationship so to me that's kind of a linguistic injury we've come to the end of our time for today's podcast just want to thank dr han for her time and i want to commend to the audience to click on some of the links that's provided on the website description of this podcast which will provide a link out to the special issue that dr han has talked about today as well as some of her research on her website thank you very much